You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. It is good to be here with you this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, grab it and let's go to Acts chapter 2 as we continue in our series that we've titled Sent, a series uh, in which we are walking together through the book of Acts. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in verse 42 and read through verse 47. So if you would, look there with me. Acts 2, it's on page 911 in my Bible, if that helps you. I have no idea if that helps you at all, but Acts 2, 42. Here's the word of the Lord. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together one more time. So Father, I just love that phrase in this passage that says every soul, that awe came upon every soul, which is just Luke's way of saying that your spirit visited every soul. So that's my only prayer this morning, Lord, for myself and for everyone in this room, just that you would um, bind up and dismiss all distractions, that you would push all other competing voices and and things uh, out of our hearts, and that you would bring us into a life-changing encounter with the real resurrected King Jesus, that your spirit would come upon us in a way that we can no longer deny the real Jesus. We can no longer deny that you are the good news that our hearts are beating for and searching for and longing for. So God, please come and do that for uh, the sake of every soul in this room and also just for the sake of our city. We long to see a movement of the gospel in our city where more and more people are experiencing and encountering and surrendering their whole being to the real Jesus. Come and do this work, we pray in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. Well, some of you know my brother-in-law, Joey Cook. Uh, he's the lead pastor at City Church in Conway, Arkansas. And if you know Joey, you know that he is an extreme personality, right? He literally used to have a ministry called Do It Big Ministries. Uh, like, that's his life motto, do it big. Like, we go bigger, we go home. And uh, a couple of years ago, he did something really big because he went to Austin, Texas, and he competed and completed the Iron Man Challenge. Raise your hand if you know what the Iron Man is. Okay. If you don't know what the Iron... Of course you do, Alton. You've probably done three of them. Uh, if you're familiar with what the Iron Man is, or if you're unfamiliar, it's, 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 it's considered the most challenging, dangerous, grueling, one of the most physically demanding sports, uh, sporting events in the world. It involves swimming, biking, and running. So you start the Iron Man with a nice 2.4-mile swim. You get out of the water and immediately jump on a bike, and you ride for 112 miles. You get off of your bike and you finish it with a nice cool marathon, which is running 26.2 miles. 
So 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, 26.2 mile marathon, icing on the cake, right? No big deal. That's insane. Uh, most people who try it um, don't finish it, don't complete it. He actually did it and he completed it. I think we have a picture of him, maybe. There he is. Do it big ministries right there. Um, so he did it. He completed it. And I remember like rooting for him and talking to him. He, he trained and prepared for this for 12 months. And I remember talking to him throughout the whole journey and talking to him after it was over and just being like, man, how did you do that? How did you actually, how were you able to become the kind of person who completes the Ironman? And he said, well, the first thing I did was I hired a coach. And he said, and then my coach told me the thing he beat in my mind over and over, the thing he kept repeating is that anybody can become an Ironman. It doesn't matter age, stage in life, body type, whatever. Anybody can become an Ironman if you're just willing to devote yourself. If you're just willing to devote yourself. So if you wake up in the morning really early and you go out and you try really hard to be an Ironman, you're going to fail, right? You're not going to make it. If you devote yourself... If you give yourself to the right training, the right practices, the right disciplines, then over time, you'll actually become the kind of person who can do an Ironman. And it will always be hard, but you'll love it, and it will be well within your capacity as a human being. And so the reason why I share that story with you is is simply because it highlights a fundamental truth about us that Luke wants us to see in Acts chapter 2. The reality is what you are devoted to will shape and direct your life. Listen, the habits, the practices, the cultural rituals that we give ourselves to fundamentally shape who we are and the kind of person we are becoming. In a sense, we become what we are devoted to. So the philosopher James K.A. Smith says it like this. He says, We cannot underestimate the power of habit. The things we do do something to us. The rhythms and routines we devote ourselves to fundamentally shape who we are from the inside out. Our practices, our rituals have a way of curating our hearts. I love that language. Of shaping and directing our desires and our loves, which in turn shapes and directs who we become for better or for worse. And what Smith is getting at is is something that we've talked about a lot as a church, but it bears repeating. And it's simply this reality that you and I are being shaped by the habits and the practices that we live into. Your habits, your routines, all that stuff gets in you, in the inside of you, through your limbic system. And it shapes and directs your hearts, which in turn shapes and directs how you live, which in turn shapes and directs the kind of person you are becoming. Whether that's the kind of person who loves and looks like Jesus, or that's the kind of person who loves and looks like the world. And because that's true, there are certain spiritual habits and practices, certain rhythms, certain rituals that God calls us to that are essential in order for us to become the men and women he created us to be, in order for us to experience the life that we were made for in Jesus. And so what I love about Acts chapter 2, what we're going to see this morning, is that Luke paints this kind of grand picture of what this looks like in Acts chapter 2 in the life of the early church. We're going to see their devotion, and we're going to see how it's shaping them. Then we're going to talk about the implications that has for us. However, before we dive into this, we have to do a little bit of background here. We have to understand something about the context. Okay, So hang with me for just a second, because there's a lot going on in Acts chapter 2 that we can't unpack. We can't cover it all. There's there's a ton there, so let me just summarize it. Let's go back to chapter 1 for just a second. 
Back in chapter 1, you've got 120 people, Luke says, 120 people who have encountered the risen Jesus. They've, they've received this call on their life to go and be his witnesses, and now they're just waiting in Jerusalem for him to send them the Holy Spirit, which he promised to do. Okay, and so they're waiting. Now, in, in Acts chapter 2, you see on the day of Pentecost, which is this Jewish harvest festival, everybody's there, everybody's to gather, uh, gathered together, and boom, the Holy Spirit comes, everybody receives the Spirit, and then what's amazing is as soon as they receive the Spirit, they're all empowered, and Luke says they all start proclaiming the mighty redemptive works of God. There's a lot in there that we're going to talk about throughout Acts, but listen, when you receive the Spirit, you start talking about Jesus. Like you're immediately empowered to proclaim who He is and what He's done for you and what God is doing in this grand redemptive story to, to, to save sinners into relationship with Himself. And so everybody starts proclaiming this and everybody's hearing it in their own language and it's this unbelievable kind of miraculous thing that's happening in Acts chapter 2. And then Peter stands up. Peter stands up in front of the whole city of Jerusalem and he preaches, preaches this sermon proclaiming Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and King who came into the world, who gave his life for our sin, who was raised from the dead so that we can have forgiveness and redemption and be reconciled to God. So Peter preaches this sermon, laying out the gospel. And then the very next thing we see after Peter's sermon is this in Acts 2.41. We'll put it on the screen. Peter preaches. This is the response. I've never quite had a response like this after a sermon. Uh, those who received, that's another word for trusted or believed in the gospel. Those who received Peter's word were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. This is the first church ever in world history. And it goes from 120 people in Acts chapter 1 to over 3,000 people overnight. This thing becomes a mega church overnight. And maybe it's just because me, I'm a pastor, and I'm typically an anxious person, but I look at this and I get excited, and I get a little bit anxious, and I start asking myself, like, if I'm one of the apostles, what do I do with this kind of church growth? Like, what's the strategy? What, what are the strategies we need to put in place to make sure that all these people are connected and they're growing and, and to make sure that we're being faithful to live out this mission that Jesus has given us? What's next? What's our next move? We've got 3,000 people who've just come to faith in Christ. What do we do now? And Luke is ahead of us. He anticipates this because look what he says in verse 42. The first thing they do after coming to faith in Jesus is they devote themselves. They, they devote themselves to four essential kind of gospel habits or rhythms. They devoted themselves, he says, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And if I were you in your Bible, I would circle or underline that word devote. That's a very, that's the, that's the big idea in this passage that we're going to focus on. They devoted themselves. To devote yourself, this word means to give yourself to, to set your heart on, to orient your life around. And so the first Christians gave themselves to these core practices as a way of orienting their lives around Jesus, as a way of aligning their hearts with His as a way of pointing and directing their lives in the direction that he was calling them to go. Because the first Christians understood a fundamental truth about the way humans work, about the way we're designed. The things you devote yourself to, the things you give yourself to, the habits, the rhythms, the practices that you embody fundamentally shape who you are and who you are becoming, for better or for worse. And so they give themselves to the gospel and to these gospel rhythms. So what I want to do is really simple this morning. I just want to ask two questions. I think they flashed on the screen a second ago. We'll put them back up there. 
Um, the first question I want to just ask is, what were they devoted to? Let's unpack briefly these four things. And the second question I want to ask is, how did it shape them? What are they devoted to? How did it shape them? And of course, as we ask that question of them, we have to ask that question of ourselves, don't we? What is it that you are devoted to? What is it that I am devoted to? And how is it shaping me? Who or what am I becoming? Everybody clear? Is that are we good? That's where we're going. All right. Let's, let's unpack it. First thing I want to talk about is what they were devoted to. And I'm going to be brief on this because we just taught through these back in January in our uh, essential series. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to the gather sermon on our podcast if you want to dive deeper into these. But for our purposes, look at verse 42. The first thing Luke says they were devoted to, the first practice they gave themselves to is to the apostles teaching, which is just another way of saying they were devoted to the scriptures. They were committed to reading and listening and meditating on the true story about who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. And I love this because the reason they're devoted to to themselves to this, the reason they're so devoted to the story of God, even though they're already Christians, is because they know that they desperately need to saturate themselves in the gospel and they constantly need to be reminded of the gospel. I love this, man. You know, so, well, sometimes in the South, we, we think that the gospel is this thing that you believe it and then you leave it. Like, I trusted in Jesus. I did that. Now, like, what, what do I need to do to kind of impress God and kind of make sure that I can secure, you know, eternal life with him or whatever? And it's like it's always about the gospel. It always comes back to the gospel. And you, you need to be reminded of it every second of every day. I love this quote from C.J. Mahaney. He says, reminding ourselves of the gospel is the most important daily habit we can establish. Reminding ourselves of the... You want to talk about a habit, a rhythm to give yourself to? Reminding ourselves of the gospel is the most important daily habit we can establish. And the early church did that. I mean, they, they rehearsed the redemptive story of God over and over and over. And that's not just something that was for them. That's something that you and I desperately have to do. Because in our culture, we are told an alternative story all day long, every day. All day long, every day, we, we are told this alternative story, right? About, about who you are, why you exist, what your biggest problem is, and where you can find joy and redemption that you long for. All day long, we're bombarded by these lies, right? These, these false messages of if only. The, the American dream, right? If only I was rich, if only I was beautiful, if only I had enough likes and followers on social media, if only I could be married, if only I could be married to a different person, if only my kids could be great athletes, if I could just get this job, if I could just afford that boat, if I could just be good enough, if only I had this one thing, then I could feel the emptiness that I carry with me. Then I could have light in my darkness, then I could be whole, then I could be saved, then I could live happily ever after. And some of you, perhaps many of you, came into this room living out of that delusion. And I know that I certainly feel the pull of it every day, and there are many moments in which I fall into it. And so whether we realize it or not, we're being shaped and formed by the culture that we live in, the cultural narrative, the stories that we're being told. That's why, by the way, fascinating. We just don't have time to cover all this, but Go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 40. It's, it's why Peter says what he says in his sermon. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And that's, I think that we have to pay attention to that. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Because Peter's saying that as human beings, we not only need to be saved from our sin, we need to be saved from the cultural environment that's shaping us. And so, 
we must devote ourselves to constantly remembering and rehearsing the central truth of Scripture, which is the gospel of Jesus. The gospel comes in, it undermines the false stories that we believe, and it gives us a better vision. It tells us the truth that your only hope for experiencing the love, the acceptance, the forgiveness, the freedom, the joy that you long for is found in Jesus. And so they gave themselves to this habit of sitting and being instructed by the gospel, of pouring the gospel into their souls. And so secondly, Luke says in verse 42, they devoted themselves not only to gospel-centered teaching, but to the fellowship, right? I think it's fascinating that the first thing they did after receiving the Spirit and being empowered to be Jesus' witnesses is that they came together. Isn't that interesting? They, they didn't all go their separate ways, but they understood that if we're going to go on this mission of advancing the gospel into the domain of darkness, we better stick together here. And so they stick together, they pull together, and they're committed to fellowship. Verse 46 says, day by day. That's, that, that means not just for a couple of hours a week on Sunday, but they were in a regular rhythm. Day by day, it was habitual for them. They would gather together in a large setting like we do here on Sundays. And he says in verse 46, they would gather together in homes like we do in missional communities. And they would devote themselves to this new family and this new partnership they have in Christ. And their fellowship wasn't just centered around potluck or their political views or their preferences or their age or their race or whatever. It was this new family that the Spirit of God was creating, this new eternal community. And it was It was beautiful. And they gave themselves to it. Thirdly, Luke says they were devoted to not just the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, but to the breaking of bread. And when I first read this this week, I was like, well, who's not? I'm devoted to bread. I love bread. I love carbs. I love all kinds of bread. Pizza, totally devoted to it. Absolutely love it. Um, Here's what we have to understand. Amen. If that's the only amen I get, I'm going to be really sad at the end of this sermon. Because I'm saying a lot of good stuff up here. All right? Um, So they gave themselves to this. And, and, And what you have to understand is that for them, it wasn't just a devotion to eating. It was a devotion to remembering. Listen, Paul's really clear in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, every time you come together in your homes to break bread, I want you to take the bread and I want you to take the cup and I want you to remember the story of God. Rehearse the story of your redemption. Remember Jesus' body broken for you. Remember His blood poured out for your sins to reconcile you to God. This meal, this eating together is meant to point you to the true bread of life. And so they were devoted to eating together. It's why as missional communities, we come together and we eat every week. It's why we celebrate and take communion here together every week. It's just another habit that we give ourselves to that shapes and directs and points our lives back to Jesus. Lastly, fourth and final uh, gospel habit they were devoted to, Luke says, is they, they gave themselves to prayer. They gave themselves to the habit of prayer. And I love that it says the prayers. People kind of don't know what that means. But at the very least, it means they prayed together corporately as a family and they gave themselves to prayer in their own personal lives. Listen, they knew that what Jesus had called them to, they could not pull off in their own power. What Jesus had called them to, fellowship. Hey, what Jesus has called us to, we cannot pull off in our own power. And so they devote themselves. Listen, they structure their whole, I love it. They structure their whole lives and their whole way of being around communion and dependence and this posture of abiding in the vine, remaining in this steady position of, of prayer for their sanity, right? And for their strength and for their joy. 
They've positioned themselves to stay in communion with Jesus. And so just to zoom back out, sum it all up, what did they devote themselves to? Here's the four, the four things. Four gospel rhythms. The apostles' teaching, by the way, notice Jesus is at the center of all of these. Okay, The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And listen, they weren't doing this out of a sense of religious obligation. Their hearts had been changed. That's what Luke wants us to see, by the way. The first thing that happens to you when you... Here's how you know you've encountered the risen Jesus. You You get a new heart. And you get a new devotion. And you get new passions. And no longer do you want to give yourself to the things you used to give yourself to. Like, there's this, new, there's this new inner war between you where it's like, I don't want to do that anymore. And so they have this new devotion, this new heart, this new passion, and it's all about Jesus. And here's what's mind-blowing to me. What you see in the following verses and throughout the rest of Acts and the whole New Testament is that God used this devotion to the gospel and to these rhythms of grace, these gospel habits, to completely revolutionize their lives. It completely transformed this community. And check this out. Not only did it transform their lives, but it transformed the world. What what you see throughout the rest... I'm going to show you in just a second. What you see throughout the rest of Acts is they became, they were being shaped by God into the kind of community that transformed their city and transformed their region and transformed the whole world. In fact, we wouldn't be here worshiping Jesus if not for their faithful witness. This is the first church. And so this brings us to the second question. We talked about what they're devoted to. Let's talk about how is this shaping them? What, what kind of people were they becoming as a result of giving themselves to these things? How were these first Christians being shaped and formed by Jesus? And I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about it. So um, there's three ways I think we see. Luke paints this picture. Three ways this community was being shaped. And I want to walk through these. Uh, three results or fruits of their devotion, if you will. And the first one we see is in verse 43. Look at, look at the first word Luke says is and. And I just want you to put your finger on that for just a moment. Uh, real quick, if you're a grammar geek, this and is what's known as a consequential conjunction. And if you're still awake after hearing me say that, uh, all it means is that Luke's about to give you the consequences or the results of what he just previously said. And so you, you would read it like this. I trained for 12 months and completed the Iron Man, right? I trained for 12 months and as a result was able to complete the Iron Man. Well, here's what this is what Luke's doing. He says, as a result, and as a result of their devotion, all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done. As a result of their devotion, they became filled with this sense of awe. This this word all, this is where we get our word awesome, right? Awesome. It's also the Hebrew word for fear. Maybe your Bible says that down at the bottom. This is also the word fear. It's it's a word used throughout the Old Testament when you encounter the personal presence of the Lord. And in his presence, you experience what the biblical authors call the fear of the Lord. And, And it doesn't mean fear in the sense of being scared of God as if he's some unpredictable loose cannon. But to fear God means that you become awestruck with the reality that because of Jesus... You get to stand in the presence of the most infinitely glorious, beautiful, holy, righteous, amazing being in all the universe, and he's not going to zap you. Because of Jesus, you get to stand in the presence of God himself. And it's so awesome and it's so terrifying because somehow it's simultaneously the safest place in the world and it's unsettling because I'm totally out of control. 
And that's the appropriate response you should have to being in the presence of the Lord. It's what the biblical authors call the fear of the Lord. And Luke said they were filled with it. Filled with it. They were filled with awe because they were awakened to the presence of the risen Jesus. And he says that there were signs and wonders being done in their midst. This is, listen, all of this is Luke's way of saying that this church was filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. They had become a Spirit-filled community. A Spirit-filled community. They were being shaped into the kind of people who were experiencing intimate fellowship with the Spirit. Their, their lives were marked by the power and presence of the Spirit. In other words, Luke's saying that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was not a fluke. Like being filled with the Spirit of God had become part of their normal experience. And as a result of their devotion, they had put themselves in a posture and in a position where the Spirit of God was not in a box, but He had free reign to move in their lives, to work in and through this community. And man, let me just put my finger on that and say that as pastors, this is what we pray for and long for as a church. This, listen, we are not trying to be a cool church. That's not our agenda. We're not, we're not, we're not trying to be a mega church. We, we, we just want to be known as a church. We want to be known as a place where the Spirit of God is present and active and alive. I, I think of uh, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14, 25. When he says that when people step into your church gathering, when people step into your community, this is straight out of the text right here. When people step into your gathering, they should declare, wow, God is really among you. That's what we long for as a church. Not, wow, that preacher is dynamic. Or, wow, that band is amazing. Did you see that solo? That was amazing. Wow, their programs are slick. Like All those things are great. And yeah, we, we strive for excellence here. All those things are awesome. But listen, if the Spirit of God is not in it, it's a show. And we don't want anything to do with it. What we long for is that people would come in and go, Wow, th- th- this is so otherworldly. The love, the hospitality, the grace, the good news that I'm hearing and that I'm experiencing is so amazing. It can only be explained by the fact that the presence of the risen Jesus must be here, alive, in this community, at work, in these people. And that's truly awesome. And that's what you see in this church. He says, it's why they experienced miracles, signs and wonders. People were being healed. We're going to talk about it. Jared's going to talk about that in the coming weeks. Like People were being healed, set free from the bonds of sin and demonic oppression. These are all signs of the Spirit's power and presence at work among them. And they lived with a sense of awe. They lived before the presence of God in awe of Him. And by the way, I think it's fascinating. I just want to point this out. I think it's fascinating the order of the text matters. And I think it's fascinating that the awe comes first and then the signs and wonders come second. I think that's fascinating because I would tend to think that the signs and the wonders would happen and that would create the sense of awe. But they didn't need miracles to be in awe of God. The presence of Jesus himself was so awe-inspiring to them because they had finally come to a place where they realized Jesus is all you need. It's all you need. And, and they were more wowed and impressed with the presence of Jesus than they were impressed with themselves or with what some apostle could do through the, you know, whatever. They were, they were more impressed with the presence of Jesus than they were with their own success or with their kids 
or with their kids' achievements or, or with their own moral resume or with other people's approval. Like they were just, they were learning to live in awe of Jesus. And I also want to point this out while we're here. I want to point out that Luke says that this experience of the presence of Jesus wasn't just for the apostles or the pastors or people with seminary degrees. Look carefully at verse 43. He says, all came upon who? Every soul. Not just the apostles. Every soul. 3,000 plus souls have been saved out of a crooked generation. And now they're living their lives in such a way that they're filled with awe and amazement at the presence of God in their lives. Every soul. And, And so... The question the text invites you to ask this morning is when is the last time you felt in awe of God's presence in your life? Just think about it. When's the last time you felt in awe of God's presence in your life? To ask the question another way, are you being shaped? Are your habits and rhythms and rituals giving themselves to the kind of person who's being shaped into one who is consciously filled with the Spirit and aware of God's presence in their life? I think there are several reasons why we struggle to experience the presence of God in their lives, in our lives. And I, while we're here, I want to pull over and park on this for just a second. I want to give you some reasons, okay, why I think we struggle. And we talked about this earlier this week as pastors, so we, we've put some thought in this. These are some things, reasons why we think we struggle to experience the presence of God. And these are all things coming straight out of my life because I'm very familiar with this struggle. Okay, so let's park on this. I think one of the reasons why we don't experience this all and, and, and experience the presence of God in our lives is because we often devote ourselves to other things, right? Like you're not in the word, you're, you don't pray, you're not plugged into community or, or any combination of those things and you wonder why God feels distant. Like when you don't put yourself in a position to commune with the spirit, you're not going to commune with the spirit. It's kind of like math. It just one plus one equals two, right? And, and so when you give yourself to other things, you become impressed with other things, more impressed with other things, whether it's money, image, the promise of the American dream. And so, so often in our lives, and I fall into this trap, I, I give myself to other things that aren't Jesus. I'm more impressed with other things than Jesus. And that's a place where it's really hard to experience awe and intimacy with the Spirit. Second, I think it's possible to give yourself to all the right things with all the wrong motivations. Okay, I know for me... I have had so many times in my life where I've, I've made reading the Bible and community and prayer all about me instead of all about Jesus. So I come to the scriptures and I say, okay, God, impress me, <laughs> right? Give me a mountaintop experience. I need an emotional pick-me-up here. Give me a little nugget. Give me something, right? Or I come to him in prayer and, 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 and not to commune with him, not to be with him, but just with a list of stuff that I want him to do for me. Right? Or I, I come into community and, and I make it all about me. And so it's possible to do all the right things and have a me-centered mentality rather than a Jesus-centered mentality. It's possible to take all these spiritual disciplines and turn them into duties, religious duties, where I'm trying to put God in my pocket and make Him work for me. And that won't work for you. It won't work. I think a third reason why um, I have struggled to experience the presence of Jesus in my life it's because I have highly unrealistic expectations and I'm very impatient. Um, we live in a quick fix, instant gratification culture, and we do not like to wait. Like if I text somebody and they don't text me back in like 10 seconds, I'm pretty upset. And I know some of you are like, well, dang, dude, it takes you two days to get back to me. Um, <clears throat> that's true. Um, 
We're impatient, right? And so I read my Bible. I, how many of you are like, well, I read my Bible and I pray and I give myself to community. I've done that. It doesn't work. I had a good friend in Kansas City say to me one time, like, why don't you just keep doing it and see what happens? Just keep showing up and see what the Spirit of God will do. Right? Like, yeah, I read my Bible two days, one time. I read it for five minutes, didn't get anything out of it. I don't think I'll do that again. Well, you'll never complete an Iron Man if that's your mentality. And you'll never become a spirit-filled person either if that's your mentality. So we have this very just impatient, unrealistic expectation. So I think a fourth reason, major reason, why I sometimes struggle to just live with this all and experience the presence of God in my life is because like most of us, I'm too busy and distracted. Right? Um, that's a train. Uh, A.J. Sherrill A.J. Sherrill says this, and this, this quote really haunts me. He says, Every moment of every day, the most significant reality in the entire universe, get this, is the radical availability of God's presence. Yet, in almost every moment of every day, we remain unaware of this generous gift because we are too busy and distracted to pay attention to God. Radically available. The Spirit of God is radically available. That's the thing. He's not trying to conceal himself. He wants to reveal himself. He, he wants to, to, to give you this intimacy that you long for. He wants to be with you, and, and yet we're not paying attention. We're, we're addicted to busyness and distraction, to work, to screens, and we've totally lost touch with ultimate reality, which is God himself. Fifth and final reason I want to mention here, just while we're on this, this little, little uh, aside here, I think a fifth reason why many of us struggle, why you might struggle to experience the presence of God in your life is because maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Like maybe you don't have one. Maybe some of you in this room think you're a Christian because you prayed a certain prayer and you live a pretty moral life, but you've never stopped to acknowledge your moral bankruptcy and that all your good works in the world are not good enough. And you've never just fallen on your face and cried out, for Jesus' mercy on your soul. Maybe for some of you in this room, it's not that you pretend to be a Christian. You know you're not. And maybe you came in this room because you're exploring the reality of God, or maybe somebody invited you. We're so glad you're here. This is a place where you can belong before you believe. We're, we're happy to have you journey with us. And I don't know what it is that's keeping you from trusting in Jesus. Maybe it's that you feel like you're not good enough. Or you doubt that there, there's no way that God could love you if He really knew you. Or maybe it's that you've been hurt by the church. And I just want you to understand that the pastors and the people of this church understand all of those feelings. We do. But the good news of Christianity is that Jesus chooses and saves people whom he knew would not be good at Christianity. <laughs> he, he saves and chooses people whom he knew would not be good at this. He saves and he chooses and saves people who know they're guilty sinners, undeserving of his grace and love. And I just wonder today, might that include you? Might that include you? Jesus lived the only perfect life. He died the only atoning death. And He is alive forevermore. And He wants you. And the good news is you can have Him. If you will look to Jesus and embrace Him as your only hope and devote yourself to Him, He will give Himself to you. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. You've got 3,000 pagans who have surrendered their life to Jesus and he is, He's not hidden from them. He's given Himself to them. His very Spirit. Whereas David says in Psalm 16, there's fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Jesus wants to give you what he gave this, this, this first group of believers in Acts chapter 2, which is himself. The good news is you can have him. You can have him. And so they became this spirit-filled community. It's what we long to see God do in our church. 
That's the first fruit of their devotion. They were filled with the Spirit, experienced His power and presence. And as we keep moving, we see the second fruit in verses 44 through 45. So look at that with me. He says, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I love this. Luke wants us to see that not only is this a Spirit-filled community, but they became a radically generous community. You see that? Everyone's pulling together their resources and sharing with one another. He says, wherever there is a need. And just put your finger on that. That's important. There's something God wants to teach us in that. In verse 45, he says that even though they've received Jesus, they've been filled with His Spirit, they've been forgiven of their sin, they still have needs. You see that? They still have problems. They still have brokenness. They still have baggage. They still have stuff that they've got to deal with. And some of you have been led to believe that if I trust in Jesus, He's going to give me my best life now. Like He exists to make me... Well, we would never say this out loud, but but our our mentality and our posture is He exists to make me healthy, wealthy, and happy. That's a prosperity gospel, and it's a false gospel. It's an alternative story that will damn you. And the reality is that you're needy. You, you come to Jesus and you, you're needy. And, and the good news is that the church is a place where you don't have to run away from your neediness. You can tell the truth about it. And that's what you see happening in Acts chapter 2. They're telling the truth about their neediness. And therefore, they're opening themselves up to experience the grace and generosity of God through the family of God. That's what you see happening in this passage. They've become a family. This is not communism, by the way. They still own their property. Communism is like, we're going to come in, liquidate all your assets. You don't own anything. The, you know, the government owns it all. So like, I could just, if that's what's going on in the church, I could just walk in your house and be like, man, like that TV. I think I'll take that. Um, that's called stealing, right? So this is not communism. This is, we're sharing our stuff because we're a family. You have a need? You, need. you need money? I have extra. You need food? I'll give you mine, even if it means I go hungry today. You need shoes? I have extra. What, what, you, you need to get to work? I'll give you a ride. You need, you need help? I'll give you my time. Like This is radical, gospel-shaped generosity that you see happening. They've become a family. They've received so much grace from Jesus that they no longer worship their money and their stuff. How about that? That's amazing. Because we have a lot of stuff, right? We got a lot of stuff. Um, the houses, house size has tripled in the last 50 years. The, the rental business and storage industry is an $8 billion a year industry that's growing 10% each year. Like, we've got a lot of stuff. And our prayer as pastors is that we would come to the same realization they came to, which is the more you consume, the more empty you are. And instead of clinging to more stuff, you cling to the Savior. And that makes you radically generous. Radically generous. Everything they have, they understood. Every breath they take is a gift of His grace. And they live that way. They live that way. I was so encouraged this week. I sent out some texts to MC leaders, and I just said, hey, give me an example, just one example, of a time when your MC pulled together and met a need uh, for someone else in your missional community. And I, I literally got dozens and dozens of, of replies. Dozens and dozens of texts. Like helping one another move, keeping someone's electricity on, feeding uh, uh, one another, fixing somebody's car, buying someone a car, building a fence, watching each other's kids, 
paying for a funeral so someone else could bury their loved one, providing meals for someone who has just had a baby or has experienced a funeral, making a grocery run when someone is sick, uh, walking with one another through pain and suffering, through sin and struggles. The list goes on. I don't even have time to read it. I can't read it. And, and man, we just want to pause on that and say that's such a beautiful evidence of God's grace in our church. We love that. We want to celebrate that. Um, we're, we, that's the kind of thing we, we are proud of. Like we love, and it's, and our, our boast is the Spirit. It all goes back to what He's doing uh, in and through our body. We love that. And it's, it's why we encourage everyone to plug into a missional community, by the way, or a DNA group. It's because it's in this family context that you truly experience the generosity and the grace of God to you and through you into the lives of others. And so that's what's happening here. They've become this radically generous community. And if we zoom out and we look at this picture Luke is painting for us, we see that not only as a result of their devotion um, do they become this church that's marked by uh, this sense of awe of being a spirit-filled community. Uh, They've become this radically generous community. And then lastly, we see that they become this profoundly missional community. Look with me at the, just to start in the middle of verse 46. He says, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did you see that? Luke says they had favor with all the people. He's talking about the community, like the city, like people outside the kingdom of God, people outside their church context. They had favor with those people, all the people, he says. Something about the way this group of people loved one another, about the way they had unity through diversity, uh, the the way they were so glad and so generous. It was magnetic to those who were far from God. It, It reminds me of what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. The whole city of Jerusalem is watching. The surrounding region is watching and they're being drawn into this new community of disciples because they tasted something that they have. They see something they have and they want it. They long for it. They want to be part of it. But here's what you have to understand. It's not just that people outside the church were being drawn in. It's that the disciples inside the church were being sent out. Guys, the first church was not a holy huddle. They were not in self-protection mode. They did not have sacred cows and certain things that they're trying to protect and like, don't let anybody else in because they're going to jack this up. Like this, this, was an, this was not an ingrown, inclusive community. This was an outward focused, we're on a mission here to go and be witnesses in our city. They were living on mission in their city. They were in people's lives, sharing meals with people who were far from God. You want to know how I know that? Because look at the last sentence in verse 47. Luke says, they had favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know what that means? Because of their presence and faithful witness in the city, people were regularly being saved and added to the church. Oh God, would you make that true of us? Because of their presence and their faithful witness in the city, people were regularly, day by day it says, day by day, regularly being saved and added to the church. This doesn't happen apart from a couple things. Two things have to happen in order for people to be saved. Number one, we have a responsibility to go and tell them about Jesus, right? We, and they model that for us. We saw this back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've been called to go out and be his witnesses, not just with our lives, but with our lips, as Jared talked about last week. 
Listen, it's necessary to display the gospel through your character and your good works, but it's not enough. At some point, you have to open your mouth and use your teeth, tongue, and lips to make words and to communicate the good news about Jesus Christ. You have to share it. You have to talk about it. You have to talk about your story and what Jesus has done in your life. I love this. Look back at verse 37 of chapter 2 real quick. I mean, you see this in Peter's sermon. It says that Peter proclaims the gospel and it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is how God's designed it. They heard the gospel and their hearts came alive. Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes through hearing this message about Jesus. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, you've been entrusted with the message about Jesus. If you've trusted Jesus, you've been entrusted with the message about Jesus. And you've been sent out to be his ambassador, to go and be his witness. I'm going to read this quote from J.I. Packer because it's just worth reading. Uh, Packer says this. um, He says, We ourselves have a responsibility for making the gospel known. The commission to publish the gospel and make disciples was never confined to the apostles, nor was it confined to the church's ministers. It is a commission that rests on the whole church collectively, and get this, therefore on each Christian individually. Evangelism is the inalienable responsibility for, uh, of every Christian community and of every Christian person. We are all under orders to devote ourselves to spreading the good news and to use all our ingenuity and enterprise to bring it to the notice of the whole world. The Christian, therefore, must constantly be searching his conscience, asking himself if he's doing all that he might be doing in this field. For this is a responsibility that cannot be shrugged off. Wow. Like the truth is, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you've been uniquely wired, uniquely placed for unique opportunities to share Jesus with people. You know, if you're, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're a teacher, you're a welder, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a coach, you're in finances, you're in high school, you're in college the missional community you're in, the person you're dating, the neighborhood you live in, who, who's in the office or cubicle next to you, whoever you share a workstation with, the names and faces of people you intersect with through your kids' events. All of that, all of that, God has sent us there into these places to bear witness with our lives and with our lips to the good news of Jesus. How, how are people getting saved regularly? This community is going out and sharing. The second thing that has to happen, though, you see in this passage is that God actually has to save First thing that has to happen for people to be saved is we have to share. Second thing that has to happen is God has to save a right that belongs to him alone. And notice that Luke says, who, who added to their number those who were being saved? The Lord did, right? The Lord added those who were being saved. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know what that means? At the end of the day, you have a responsibility to share Jesus with people, but the pressure's off, right? Like our responsibility and call from God is to cultivate gospel conversations The Spirit's responsibility is to create gospel conversions. And that's helpful for us because it speaks to the doubters in the room who believe I could never win anybody to Christ. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I don't have enough answers. I could never articulate it well enough. It also communicates to the doers in the room who believe, man, if I just, you know, we can do this. We just need the right technique. Um, We just, you know, we need just the right words and all that. And we'll get the results. The truth is, what the Spirit of Jesus is calling us to do is just live faithfully as a church of missional communities who are loving and serving people like Jesus and who are faithful to step into the doorways He opens for gospel conversations. And He will do all the work. He will do all the work. And I don't know about you, but I want to give my life to that. So to sum up, let me land the plane here. Um, here's what we see in Acts chapter 2. 
I love it. It's a great picture. You see the first church devoted to Jesus by giving themselves to these gospel-centered practices that keep them tethered to Jesus. And as a result of their devotion, they're being shaped into a spirit-filled community, a generous community, and a missional community, which is to say they're being shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. Jesus is all of these things. Over time, with practice, they're becoming more and more like Jesus, who is full of the Spirit, who is infinitely generous, and who is the ultimate missionary. And here's the good news. The good news of Christianity is that even though we're called to devote ourselves to Jesus, the good news is we are not saved by the strength of our devotion. This is not like a rah-rah thing. I'm not trying to like stir up your emotion and be, get you like where you're just like, man, I'm just so, I'm not trying to do that. If the Spirit of God does that, awesome. The, the good news is we're not, we don't have to emotionally manipulate. We don't have to get ourselves all charged up. We're not saved by the strength of our devotion. We are saved by the strength of Jesus' devotion. His devotion and commitment to his own glory through the gospel. His devotion to making his own name famous. His devotion to, to seeking and saving the lost. His devotion to rescuing his body and his bride from sin, death, and hell. Jesus is devoted to his mission, which means Jesus is devoted to you. He's committed to you. He's faithful to you. And this, this term devote means to give yourself to. That's, that's the glorious news of Christianity that blows my mind. Jesus, in spite of our sin, has given himself to us and for us. That's what we celebrate each week as we come to this table. His body was broken and his blood was poured out because he gave his life for us to save us from sin, to save us from a crooked generation, to bring us out of the domain of darkness and into his very own kingdom as his beloved sons and daughters. That is good news worth devoting your life to. So what I'm going to ask right now is I'm just going to ask that we would stay in this moment. Okay, keep your heart engaged. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. I'm going to ask that you would go ahead and and stand. And... um, We're just going to orient our hearts around this gospel for just a second. The way we take communion here is you simply tear a piece of bread off, just like Jesus did on the night before he was betrayed. He tore a piece of bread off. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he dipped it in the cup and handed it to his disciples and said, this is my blood poured out for sin. And so we have uh, four stations. We have two up here in the front, two in the back. And uh, to my left and your right is a gluten-free option if that interests uh, you, if you need that. And let me just say this, if you're in this room and you've never trusted in Christ, you've never devoted your life to him, today is, it can be the day of salvation for you. His, his call on your life is that you would come to him and you would receive him. You would embrace him as your only hope. Don't let anything stop you or prevent you. The only thing that can stop you and prevent you from doing that is you. Lay that down and come to Jesus. And if you would make that decision, man, we would love to talk with you. Uh, Jared, Luke, Chuck, we, we, we will make ourselves available to you. We'd love to sit and talk with you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would come now and do your work. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have your way with us. We ask there be nothing preventing us from surrendering our hearts to you and devoting our lives to you. We ask that all these things that we see in Acts chapter 2, you would do in us, in our church, in our city, and not for our glory, not so that we can leave a legacy of being, man, what a great church, or man, he really got it, but just a legacy of your love and your commitment to your own glory in Paragold in this this region. So come and do it, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.